Hi, this is Connor. We had just put today's podcast to bed when we got some breaking news. The US-China Joint Glasgow Declaration on Enhancing Climate Action in the 2020s was released. John Kerry a little earlier was on the stage talking about that. It's basically the fruit of behind-the-scenes negotiations between the US and China. And here are a few areas on which they say they're going to cooperate. Things like regulatory frameworks, environmental standards, maximising the societal benefits of the clean energy transition, policies to encourage decarbonisation, and key areas related to things like green design, renewable resources, and using technologies such as carbon capture storage and direct air capture. Lots to dig into there. And of course, we'll talk about it again tomorrow on the podcast. But for now, let's get back to the main theme of the day, transport. We're expecting to see some of the first electric planes in the mid-2030s. Even if we get to those, they're not a silver bullet. We have to be very, very good at activating change in developing markets so that we start thinking about not bringing to our countries all technologies. There's an increasing, I think, lack of trust between the Global North and the Global South. What would be really important and a great outcome is, you know, clarity on what happens in the just transition. You're listening to The Lid Is On from COP26 in Glasgow with me, Connor Lennon and Lara Quinones. Hello, Lara. Hey. How are you today? I am tired. So the transport <laughs> theme didn't liven you up on roads, on uh, the... On the ocean waves up in the air. I mean, come on. Well, yeah, it was it was interesting. Yeah, very I, interesting. Very technological. And you'll be traveling day. around Scotland soon. I'll be traveling off somewhere. No, come yeah. on, travel. It's back. It's back. <laughs> but can we clean up transport? That was the theme of today. Oh, yeah. And there is a real fear that the vehicles that we're not using will be dumped in the developing world. And this is already a problem today. Could it get worse tomorrow? And what can be done about it? Lara, you also had reactions to the draft COP26 statement. And we also had lots of business commitments, but can we make sure that those commitments are turned into real action? Because that's what the people outside of the COP26 venue are calling for. So the main event today, we had the declaration to speed up the global transition to zero emission vehicles. Can you tell us more about that? Over 100 national governments, cities, states and major businesses signed the Glasgow Declaration on zero emission cars and vans. And uh, of course, this declaration is for what you're talking about. This is to end the sale of internal combustion engines by 2035 and then by 2040 worldwide. And one of the main sessions was introduced by Omnia El Omrani. She's a doctor based in Cairo, Egypt, and a member of the Global Youth Coalition for Road Safety. And she ran through some of the problems associated with combustion engine vehicles. As a young medical doctor, I witness every single day patients suffering from asthma, as well as other respiratory diseases and cardiovascular diseases, all due to air pollution, which kills more than 7 million people every year according to the World Health Organization, and leads to a global loss of over 1 trillion US dollars in health damages globally. Transportation is responsible for over 24% of the global carbon emissions, which lead to air pollution. Cutting down such carbon emissions has benefits for health 
economies as well as reducing inequalities. And yet, action on reducing emissions is not happening fast enough. I call upon you all to work together to effectively make zero emission vehicles the new normal for current and future generations to come. So yeah, transport, nearly a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions, said Omnia El Omrani from the Youth Coalition for Road Safety. I don't know about you, but I live above a freeway in New York and I can't wait for electric vehicles Oh in my New God, York. yes. Not only noisy, but also like... Smelly. Smelly. Bad for your asthma. Yeah. Every day I get on my phone, air quality today is not great for sensitive groups. I am a sensitive group. You're a very sensitive person. Exactly. So, (laughs) yeah, I can't wait for that change. And and I'm happy also to inform that Latin American cities like Bogota, Cuenca, and El Salvador, uh, they also will be turning all their public transport fleets to zero emissions by 2035. We heard from Monica Araya a little earlier today. She is from the Climate Works Foundation, which campaigns for the electrification of road transport. She made just that point that the Global South is involved in this as well. So I grew up in Costa Rica, and I do remember going to school in a third-hand bus that was imported from the US. So that experience shaped a lot of my thinking around this transition, because I know on the one hand that we have to make sure that we transform the big markets that produce, say, trucks, buses, cars, and we have to activate changes in those markets so that there are ripple effects. At the same time, we have to be very, very good at activating change in developing markets so that we, say in Costa Rica, in a place like South Africa or the Philippines, we start thinking about not bringing to our countries all technologies. Think of a a fax versus a smartphone. Why would you want to be stuck with a fax when you can shift to a smartphone? So here's something I would like to share with you. Did you know that this year, for the first time, an emerging economy, Chile, has said that after 2035, it is only going to sell zero emission vehicles. Why is this important? It is very important because so far, the stories that we are hearing come from California, come from Europe, somewhere in, say, Norway or somewhere in, say, in the UK. And it creates the idea that this transformation is only going to have, is going to take place only in certain geographies and the rest of the world is going to passively absorb all the old technologies. So one of the key messages that I would like to leave today is that because we know there is that risk we have to be very very good at finding the countries in the global south that are already saying no thank you we are not going to be a dumb place dumping place for that technology and why is this very important it is important because when you talk to manufacturers in developed markets some of them will say that there is no demand for these new technologies in the South. But because I work in the South, because I know that citizens, drivers, mayors, say, in Santiago, in Bogotá, in Medellín, because I know that people want zero emission options because they know they are better, I would like to challenge the idea that there is no demand in the South, that they don't see the benefits, and that we are going to have to passively transfer all this old, obsolete, harmful technology 
to, to those geographies. So I'm very actually optimistic that we will see a lot of champions from the Global South that will challenge a lot of these ideas. And most importantly, they are going to challenge the notion that this is inevitable. It's not inevitable. We can actually do something to stop it. That was Monica Araya from the Climate Works Foundation, which campaigns for the electrification of road transport, hopeful that the developing world can play a full role in the transition to zero emission road vehicles. And the UN's take on all this is that the transformation of the transport sector is critical for achieving the Paris Climate Agreement. But it must go hand in hand with efforts to reduce inequality and poverty, and special attention needs to be paid to the needs of vulnerable groups and countries. Now, it's not just about cars, trucks and motorbikes. We also were talking about the transport industry on the seas. Shipping, hugely important to global trade, but it's heavily reliant on a form of liquid fuel, which is often called bunker fuel. That dirty. Has a very dirty, mm. very high carbon footprint. I saw one estimate from the World Bank that a single large shipping vessel produces as much sulphur as 50 million cars. Oh, wow which is really something, isn't it? Problem is, electric shipping really isn't an option when it comes to those nope. big container vessels that are crossing the ocean. So what can be done? I spoke to Roel Hunders. He's the head of air pollution and energy efficiency at the IMO. That's the International Maritime Organization. This is a UN agency based in the UK. He said that the emphasis in that industry is on cleaner fuels and energy efficiency. There are actually a lot of technologies already available that can reduce the energy consumption of ships and that is important because the more we can actually reduce fuel consumption now, the less alternative fuels we will need in the future and there are indeed quite a number of uh, fuels that uh, various segments of the industry are looking into. Think about renewable ammonia, think about renewable hydrogen, uh, electricity is one of the solutions for ships when there are in ports to connect, uh, biomethane, and some of the major container lines are actually looking in all these solutions in these alternative fuels. The question, of course, is will they be available? This really requires cooperation both between the shipping industry, with the energy sector, with national governments to make sure that these kind of fuels will be available and will also be competitive compared to the current fossil fuel price. And this is the challenge and this is actually what IMO is looking into right now from a regulatory perspective as well as from a safety angle. When can we imagine a world where no one's using these dirty bunker fuels anymore? I think we will see gradually an uptake uh, on certain routes, uh, in certain shipping segments uh, of these kind of alternative low carbon or zero carbon fuels like hydrogen, like ammonia. It's unclear yet when the entire world fleet will be able to pass through that transition. And again, that depends really on uh, the availability of those fuels. The power demand is, is huge. And so what we already see now is that the shipping industry will have to compete with other sectors that also want to have access to renewable fuels. So we need uh, a huge amount of investments, uh, both in infrastructure and ports, in renewable energy production that will also be made available to the shipping industry. And uh, we are working on that from an IMO perspective. We actually have an event tomorrow, a specific side event that looks into the production side of such zero carbon fuels for uh, shipping in developing countries to again make sure that they can be part 
and we see a lot of um, interest and a lot of potential in some of the developing countries in producing renewable hydrogen, ammonia, um, and, and serve actually as a new future bunkering hub for these kind of fuels. That was Royal Hunders, Head of Air Pollution and Energy Efficiency at the International Maritime Organization, raising the idea that the growth of the cleaner fuel market could be economically interesting for developing countries. Today, also 19 countries signed the Clyde Bank Declaration, and this is to establish zero emission shipping routes. Uh, It means that whatever these ships are going with the containers, they'll be doing it with green fuels. A lot of what the IMO, our IMO colleague was talking about. And uh, do you know that there is 50,000 American ships out there? I did not know that's a lot of ships. That's a lot of ships. So they're going to start with like, of course, uh, greening a few of these ships, the biggest ones. And then uh, their hope to um, kind of explore this technology all over the world. Lots of ships in the oceans, lots of planes in the sky. And we have the same issue in the aviation industry. Electrification is not really seen as a viable option. However, the International Air Transport Association, that's the aviation industry trade body, recently announced a commitment to go net zero by 2050. But how are they going to do it? Well, I asked Lauren Upink Calderwood, the head of aviation, travel and tourism at the World Economic Forum. There's going to be a small portion of the energy demand that will rely on new technologies like hydrogen and and battery electric, but that with long haul is not feasible because of the the physics of it. And so sustainable aviation fuels really are our only solution to decarbonizing and enabling flying carbon neutral. Now Bertrand Picard's here, he flew a solar powered plane around the world a few years ago, so it can be done, but <laughs> at a commercial level, to what extent could we see electric planes? We're expecting to see some of the first electric planes um, and hydrogen planes in the mid-2030s. There is obviously a certification process that has to be taken with that, and even if we get to those, they're not a silver bullet, because they will never be able to account for long-haul travel, and so there's a likelihood that they will perhaps account for about... 20 to 30 percent and so you're really the champions in that space will be your regional airlines your low-cost carriers and we are seeing um, a lot of movement from them I think just this morning I think EasyJet is is committing to to science-based targets joining many other airlines in doing so Um, and we also we run an initiative called Target True Zero which looks specifically at hydrogen and, and battery electric flying And there is a number of regional airlines signing up to that um, because they recognize that's their uh, quickest pathway to decarbonizing their operations. That was Lauren Upink Calderwood, Head of Aviation, Travel and Tourism at the World Economic Forum. With the interesting news that electric flights on budget airlines could be a reality for short-haul flights in our lifetimes. So a similar story to shipping, the technology is there. The real need is to get it scaled up so the cost can come down. Now, also today, a big meeting was the high-level meeting of Caring for Climate, which took place today. CEOs of companies and organizations actively engaged in climate action with a long-standing working relationship with the UN were invited. I spoke to Sanda Ojiambo. She's the head of the UN Global Compact, one of the organizers of the event. She said the UN's message to the business leaders is very similar to what the activists outside the security zone are calling for. My ideal outcome would be for businesses, first of all, to truly commit to 
credible action. So as we've heard here today, lots of commitments on the table. But what we really want to see is how those commitments turn into action, how those actions can be tracked and verified. You know, it's we're done with the policies. We're done with the, you know, what are we doing here? It's really about what are the key actions and what are the outcomes going to look like? That's the first. For me, the second also is, is the ask that the government set policy that makes it possible for businesses to do their part and be very clear what the expectation is from businesses and level the playing field. The third is really the idea of bringing together the globe. You know, there's an increasing, I think, lack of trust between the global north and the global south. We're seeing it being played out in the finance debate, but also being seeing it played out in many other ways. And I think what would be really important and a great outcome, even for the businesses here, is, you know, clarity on what happens in the just transition, how they can then also reposition and repurpose their businesses to ensure that equitable and, and just transition. You know, in the session that we just listened to, we heard from a, a young climate activist who was talking about the fact that you know, businesses may say that they're doing work that is green and causing and, you know, driving towards, uh, you know, green recovery and green growth. But at the same time, they're displacing populations, they're, you know, splitting families, they're also, you know, doing other actions. So I think it's really important to take a whole, a whole look at what this transition looks like and what business should do. That was Sanda Ojiambo, the head of the UN Global Compact, which was set up to encourage businesses to adopt sustainable and socially responsible policies. Well, Lara, we're almost in the final stretch, aren't we? And we saw this morning the UK COP26 presidency released its draft final statement and there was plenty of reaction to that. Well, the document urges countries to strengthen their national commitments and also submit their strategies, their actual plans for net zero, not just saying we're doing it, it's like how we're doing it by 2022, which is actually not not too far away. And this is to keep keep the 1.5 goal within reach. Uh, it also mentions for the first time in a COP outcome text, uh, the turn of loss and damage which kind of uh, entails that countries that have to deal with these climate disasters need help from the developed countries to kind of be resilient. And this has been a sticking point for some time. Oh, yes. It is also the first time that it calls to end the fossil fuel subsidies, like literally on the text. Which the Secretary General of the UN was was calling for very forcibly before this event. Yes. Uh, But the civil society... Is not having it. Some members of the Climate Action Network said today that the terms of the words are like too vague and that it creates an illusion that there is action when it isn't. So they're asking, now that they still have three days until the negotiations are over, to revise it, change it, and make sure that the commitments, the actual commitments of these countries are included there. Well, we're really into the nitty-gritty. It's those really tricky negotiations where every comma, every letter is going to be passed and argued over. In previous COPs, we've had negotiators sleeping on the floor in the offices. Yeah. So whilst all of the fun events that we've been to, the side events, they're all going to end on Friday. It's just going to be hardcore negotiations and we'll be following what we can and we'll see if we get an outcome. The president, Alok Sharma, he said, nope, we're going to get it wrapped up on Friday. But is it going to happen? He said, we're going to get, uh, he was in a plenary with all the negotiators. And he's like, I still aim to have this ready by Friday, this Friday. <laughs> and actually, a lot of negotiators laughed about it. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Well, tomorrow, cities, regions and infrastructure. We have got lots to say about that. I hope you get some sleep, Lara. 
Yeah, I need some sleep. <laughs>